Part of the process of building a monopoly out of nothing with no money invested is analyzing the marketplace. So this week, we talk about the competitive landscape and the qualities to be found in a typical connection economy entrepreneur. Because you see, over the last six or seven years, I've identified seven elements to such an entrepreneur. And in this episode, we cover five of them. This is Digital Bacon FM. Bringing us perfectly to the top of the hour, the weekday brunch. It's Friday. That means we are joined on the line by our marketing guru, the master of the universe, Stephen Barnes. Good morning, sir. Well, hello there. Um, what happened to the the one and only? Because I've kind of gotten used to that introduction by now, and I'm feeling a little bit sort of left out that you haven't described me in that fashion on well, the, on this occasion, Mr. Black. Well, the problem was about four songs ago, I played a Chesney Hawk song called The One and Only, and I didn't want to have to put the song before your name or sort of lower your value by a Chesney Hawk song. I'm sorry. I'll take it back. I will start again. The one, the only Stephen Barnes. Indeed. We're all unique and I'm grateful for that intro. <laughs> uh, you know, you pay me for those. Do I? <laughs> I I'm, just, I'm just, hang on a minute. I'm just adding it on your bill. Okay, no worries. I'll um, I'll make sure that uh, my people speak to your people once it's arrived. <laughs> That's and we'll my have fucking a negotiation line. About you, there's nothing. Now, now, so now, now. There's nothing worse than being quoted by your own brilliance. But anyway, there you go. So yeah, nothing new under the sun, my friend. Nothing new under the sun. No, very true. Thank you for the email today. We're going to pick up from where we left off last week, moving forward again into the competitive landscape as you describe it. Go. Well, yes. So the backstop here, right, is that we're talking about building a monopoly in the connection economy, uh, and you're going to be thinking about a new business model to anticipate how the connection economy works, recognizing the industrial economy is history. Uh, no, it's not. It's still going on. It's wheedling its way down in probably 50 or 60 years before everything is completely sort of, you know, moved over to the realities of how the connection economy uh, operates. But, you know, you are a connection economy entrepreneur and you're needing to uh, analyze the marketplace and you want to assess the, the, the so-called competitive landscape that you're moving into, obviously recognizing that you know, the industrial economy operators that uh, the incumbent operators who you are going to be ostensibly competing against, uh, they um, they do one thing uh, their way and you're going to come and do it another way. Now, um, when it came to me doing the thinking behind my business model and how we were going to differentiate ourselves from our industrial economy competitors, my um, discrete knowledge of the Hong Kong immigration niche gave me the ability to, to, to sort of do the thinking in an analytic fashion. Um, I can't um, anticipate what anybody else's niche is going to be all about because they're going to be experts in that niche and uh, that's got nothing to do with what I do. But there are certain qualities that kind of present themselves when you are a so-called connection economy entrepreneur and you're analyzing the marketplace. And we looked at we looked at two or three last week and I thought what we do is just carry on that list and um, uh, um, uh, you know, take stock of, uh, of, of of what a typical connection economy entrepreneur sort of like looks like, if you will. So we talked about uh, connection economy entrepreneurs being concerned about the three P's being profit, people and the planet. Mm. Uh, we also talked about how we value ourselves and the work that we do. And we're very um, 
uh, very open about uh, the value that we represent. Uh, the reason why we're able to uh, get commercial relationships with others is because we're able to impart something that other people want, and there's essential value in that. And uh, and what we do is valuable. And uh, uh, you know, the connection economy entrepreneur recognizes that. Um, we also uh, seek purpose and sort of meaning in all that we do. Uh, what I mean by that is that we kind of ask why. Um, we're doing what we're doing, not uh, how are we doing what we're doing or what are we doing, but really why are we doing it? Uh, and once we've got an answer to the reason why we're doing it and uh, in the process of creating relationships with others, we seek to create uh, experiences uh, with others and not just go about filling needs. Mm. So those are the, sort of the three things that we sort of you know covered at some um, at some length last week. Yeah. So picking up from there, there's, a, there's another sort of four that we can have a conversation around. But yeah, okay. please. Um, is there is there a business model that has both um, attributes of a connection economy and an industrial economy? And if so, would you say that your business in particular is 100% um, connection economy or do you think it has still some traits of the old? Well, um, it, it, it both, be, and that's necessarily so because the connection economy is a different way of wrapping up uh, what you typically do recognizing your ability to communicate with others uh, in the connection economy that you were never able to do in, in an industrial economy, guys. Um, and so when we are um, looking sort of out at our relationship, seeking to um, uh, develop commerce by um, peddling our expertise, if you want to sort of put it that way, what we're doing is we're using connection economy techniques um, that are enabled by the realities of the connection economy to forge those relationships. But when it comes to actually delivering the service, we're just delivering the service in pretty much the same way as it's always been mm -hmm. done. Um, you know, you can't reinvent the way that you deliver your service on the on the delivery side, if you will. But what you can reinvent is the way that you create relationships that leads to the opportunity for you to deliver those services. Mm -hmm. and, and I think we discussed it last time out where um, looking at a restaurant situation. In a restaurant situation, you've got a classic opportunity to be both an industrial economy operator and a connection economy operator. Okay. Because you're going once you've got bums on seats and you've got people through the door, um, you're an industrial economy operator. You're not doing anything in, in differently. Mm. But um, as a connection economy entrepreneur, what you're going to do is you're going to anticipate, for example, that your relationship, your prospect of the relationship with the uh, uh, customer that you've got in your restaurant began well, well, well before they ever sat down on the seat. Uh, for you to serve them food. Um, you know, it was all about how you were able to attract their interest in the first uh, or other reach out initiatives and how you conducted yourself um, through those reach out activities, how you made your proposition interesting through your connection activities, mm. how you're able to tempt them into your your place. Uh, and once they were there, you, you you basically put on your best possible show that you could. And then uh, on the way out, uh, you said goodbye to them. But then the second phase of your connection economy outreach initiative would kick in. And that would be you know, how do you follow up and how do you manage these relationships now that you've had them? Yep. And it goes beyond just, you know, sending them a, a sort of an email questionnaire asking them to, um, you know, report on their um on the experience that they had, even though that's massively valuable, that's just you know one trick, if you will, one one tactic. So there's a gazillion things that you can really uh, begin to sort of incorporate into your industrial economy modus okay. um, if you've got 
you know, the wherewithal to grasp what the connection economy is all about, and you're brave enough to, um, you know, go about the uh, the business of um, having uh, long-term relationships with uh, with punters that come your way. Okay, so, so yeah, you can marry the two. And and is there is there a, a transition from in in the in the perspective of the client where he is engaging with you uh, on an economy, uh, sorry, um, a connection economy basis where he's reading your content. He develops a relationship with you. It then moves to the transactional nature of the relationship. And then he, he doesn't read the content uh, anymore because it's not really applicable until he needs your services again. And I, I, I use that example because I've interacted with you on several occasions in a business sense. And that was the way it, it happened. I had a need. Uh, I read your content. It fulfilled the need. You then delivered a service. Um, and then... Just, you know, I'm still on your emailing list. And when I see something that piques my interest, only just as a matter of law rather than as a matter of, oh, that applies to me, then I'll read it. But I don't sense a, a desire to read content about visas anymore because they're no longer applicable to me in particular. Absolutely, yeah. So, so it's not so much about, um, you know, communicating with them via a content proposition after you've got a relationship. You're using connection economy techniques to create the relationship, okay. answering questions and help solve problems. But once you've got the relationship, you know, you now go full steam ahead in managing that relationship mm. from the perspective of a understanding what you know the 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 client or the relationship wants out of the relationship now that it's established and you've delivered your first um you know value that you can deliver mm -hmm. and secondly recognizing that you know uh, once you've delivered that first value it's in a sense they've moved on they're doing other things they're not you know interested in what you're all about like you've just said you know you you still maintain um membership of our distribution list because you you know we have a relationship you're curious about the stuff that i'm saying and mm. and when something piques your interest from a legal perspective you'll engage in it you'll read it mm. and you're not looking from that to you know instruct us in any further ways that's not what it's all about sure. the relationship management piece is 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 designed to anticipate that you respect what they're all about. You uh, don't waste their time. Uh, you uh, let them understand that uh, if you, they do need the ability to um, uh, get value out of you again in the future, you're just you know one com simple communication away, and that uh, you know any such communication that you might make is valued by, in our instance, uh, you know us, um, and really just you know respecting and seeking to sort of properly um, maintain that relationship and continue to, to deliver value to that relationship on terms that make sense for them and also for, you know, the kind of niche that you're in. So you don't want to be just, in a sense, sending people emails with with stuff just because you can and because yeah. you think they might want to know about it. It's, it's more profound than that. It's it's recognizing, wow, I've, you know, I've served this, purpose, this person previously. We, we do have a relationship. We know that, um, you know, they respect what we're all about and that, that we're there for them. So uh, from our perspective, the way that we maintain our relationships is literally just letting them appreciate that uh, we are there for them and we don't ask anything of them uh, when they, you know, intend to deal with us going forward. More often than not, I'd say 80% of, of contacts with clients that we have after we've delivered our service are, are, do not generate revenue you as such and and, and that's okay mm. uh, it's just putting ourselves into their shoes and saying well uh, given that these guys are experts at what they do and i know they're you know they, they're good at what they do because they've taken care of me in the past 
um, you know, how do they how do they acquit themselves at this point? So that uh, in the future, I'm not going to go anywhere else. I'm definitely going to go back to these guys. I suppose, uh, and that's really how you manage it, connection economy wise, after the fact. I suppose there's also a subtle back uh, back end side to it that when you are in front of somebody, even if it is unobtrusively. Uh, Somebody will know somebody who needs a visa and uh, that always acts as a prompt for a word of mouth referral. You're getting it A, from having initially delivered a good service and then B, because you somewhere in the background always is a reminder that you're still there. And also, it's so that's so true. And also remember that, you know, when when somebody's making a referral of you, they're, they're kind of, you know, they're not only saying good things about you to do that, but they're recognizing that they are, by making a referral to somebody else, helping that other person solve their sure. problem. So it's validatory sure. for them too. Sure. Um, right. The fourth- so connection, yeah, so, mm-hmm, yeah, so connection economy and entrepreneurship yeah. sort of anticipates those kinds of things, yeah? So the fourth thing that um, I think we're just about to touch on yeah. is, um, what, because what we do is new by definition, the connection economy is new, uh, you know, in order for us to come up with a connection economy proposition, you know, we have to be bold. We have to anticipate that we're going to make mistakes. And so we, in a sense, we actively pursue mistakes because we're looking for better ways to do, you know, things that have always been done a particular way. And so, you know, the status quo for the entrepreneur is dangerous because if you're not moving forward, you can always be overtaken by others. Um, and it's much better to invent new standards in the connection economy guys than it is to, you know, just truck on uh, doing stuff in the same way as you've always done it. Even if you are a connection economy entrepreneur, you've established a proposition that is pure connection economy activity. So, you know, we our philosophy is that we we always, in a sense, we're disrupting ourselves um, because if we don't disrupt ourselves, then the possibility of being disrupted by others is, you know, is immense. Mm. So we're always um, moving forward and that necessarily means that um, you know we're going to make some mistakes I'll give you an example um, we uh, oh, three or four years ago took on board a new project that was based on uh, the ability to get a European passport for high net, relatively high net worth individuals in a very quick and easy uh, pro- process that doesn't require much time in country to qualify uh, and doesn't uh, involve a, a significant, an overly significant investment in order to get that European passport. It's a program called the Golden Residence Permit from Portugal. I won't, I won't go into the details, the technical details of it, albeit to say. I believed that uh, when that program was put onto the marketplace, finally, there was a a really good, efficient way for foreign nationals to go on to qualify for a European passport, a Portuguese passport, no less, which is a great Mm. travel document. Uh, And then we we threw ourselves for a year and a half into a very, very detailed content development program. Um, And we, I think we produced about 200 videos and uh, all gazillions of infographics. We demystified the whole process. We reduced it down to a kind of a follow the arrows type experience. And we made it completely easy for anyone who was interested in qualifying for that that, uh, passport uh, to to, to do so. Um, Now, after oh, about nine months of not getting any instructions and barely any interest via our um, uh, our very compelling web you know proposition, uh, it came it, you know it occurred to me that we were barking up the wrong tree. Um, some data came out after twelve months or so that said that 
the vast majority of people who are participating in that program were Chinese, okay. um, not English language speakers. Uh, and if you understand how the Chinese immigration services market works, uh, they don't source their providers via the internet in English. Uh, what they do is they source their providers via trusted relationships in China in Chinese. So we were never going to get to the uh, mass market of um, uh, of people for that European passport initiative. And uh, whilst we got a lot of kudos from you know colleagues in the space that uh, you know so understood you know what this program is all about and how we're going to go, go about doing it, mm. um, we made a massive mistake investing in that because we should never have done it because we didn't do the thinking, we didn't analyze the marketplace properly. But having said that, you know. Like I say, a connection economy instrument actively pursues mistakes, and uh, and that's what we uh, that's what we did in that instance. We pursued a particular initiative, it turned out to be a mistake, um, and we learned from it. So we tried to invent new standards there. Uh, but then, you know, the other alternative uh, to, sort of, to sort of counter that is an initiative that we are just in the process of launching now called Hong Kong Visa Sherpa, which is designed to service the immigration services market for corporate uh, visas, if you will. Employment mm. visas in, in, for large companies in Hong Kong. And we know that market very, very well indeed. And so because we don't, we know that uh, in a sense, whilst we're presently operating in the, in the individual immigration services space and where we're you know, aggressively pursuing monopolist, a monopolist status there, the corporate market is wide open and um, the big players are in that market. Um, but uh, we know that if we can uh, go into that marketplace before anybody else, if we uh, just allow the status quo of how it's always been done to remain the same, uh, and if we didn't, as we've done, spent three years and a very large sum of money over time uh, on uh, building this new website and the sort of 700 videos and uh, 480 infographics that, that's in there and everything else that's available for, for companies to use mm -hmm. to go about securing immigration status for, for, <clears throat> for their employees. These are large companies with more than 100 employees. Mm -hmm. um, uh, if, we, uh, if we didn't go into the market in that way, um, in due course, uh, anybody that's in the corporate immigration services market and can see what we're doing in the individual immigration services space with, with content and indeed intelligent content marketing, they could indeed go after uh, the market in the way that we're doing. But for them, they'd be kind of like protecting what they've got rather than trying to gain new market share as we are. Mm. Um, but, you know, we haven't stood on our, um, on, rested on our laurels. We realize that the status quo is dangerous. In this instance, the status quo is dangerous for our competitors. It's not dangerous for us. And to that end, uh, the Hong Kong visa sherpa.com website which your listeners can go to if they wish to see what i'm talking about it represents a, a completely new standard of way of delivering immigration services to companies with more than 100 employees in hong kong hmm. okay uh so making mistakes is okay it's just you've got to got to recover quickly You've got to, yeah, it's hard to make mistakes, but you try to minimize the mistakes by doing the thinking first and then trying stuff out incrementally just to make sure that your proposition is right and the market is going to respond positively to what you're all about. And you can do that, testing it very simply these days just by putting up a three or four page website with the basics of the, of the proposition essay for people to understand, give them a bit of an experience. Um, and then you use LinkedIn or Facebook or Twitter for that matter to target, um, you know, that, the, those websites pages at the, the audience that you think would be naturally interested in in what it's all about um, and then um, interact with them on that sort of basis uh, and you might spend a thousand US dollars on, on learning everything that you need to learn to perfect your final proposition rather than spending three and a half years and you know producing a gazillion um, 
videos and other uh, content resources that turn out to be um, useless at all, just like you know we did in our European Passport Initiative. Mm. Okay, so um, the fifth sort of quality, if you will, that's uh, inherent in a connection economy and entrepreneur as I've sort of experienced these last seven years or so is that actually, you know, we're interested, we're more interested in what we don't know. Um, and what I mean by this is that, you know, business is a learning opportunity. And uh, by talking to customers and delivering a customer service, that's kind of an education for yourself. And, uh, and when you're selling stuff, um, it's kind of like scholarship. You know, you, when you sell something to somebody, remember, it's a two-way transaction. Mm. You've got, you know, your interest reflected and you've got the interests of the other party that's, uh, that need to be reflected. Uh, and if you really look at, you know, the relationships that you create with customers, um, you have an amazing opportunity to come up with something, you know, very, very compelling. Um, and unless you think about... Um, coming up with something that's compelling and going through the thinking and all the good stuff that we've discussed thus far, you're never going to really know whether this stuff works, right? So intrinsically, you've got to be interested in what you don't know in order to go out and figure, um, you know, what you need to figure out so that you can say that you do know and in the process learn everything that you need to learn and, and, and reinvent stuff. You know, I, um, I I had an inkling, for example, six, seven years ago when we came up with our irresistible offer of a 200% money back guarantee. I had an inkling that that would be successful because it's a no-brainer. But uh, the kind of, you know, response that I've met from every client that we've offered the 200 percent money back guarantee to has told me so much about what that proposition actually means it means different things to different people but in the final analysis we know that we're selling peace of mind and by giving them a 200 percent money back guarantee we're doubling down on that peace of mind mm. um the delivery element in, in a massive way um but you know because uh, i was able to offer that and uh, i didn't know what it was going to be all about in real terms um other than the fact that I knew it would be interesting to people, uh, the actual responses that we've had for six or seven years now has told me a lot about, you know, the customer and what they're thinking and given me insights into, you know, the psychology of, the, of an immigration customer that goes beyond, you know, the fact that I, I had been serving them for 20 years prior. Uh, it just told me stuff that previously, you know, I, I'd never even had a chance to think about. So, so yeah, we are interested in what we don't know and, uh, and business is a learning opportunity. Okay, let's let's explore that double your money back guarantee thing. You know, when you when you look at products nowadays, they have these big stamps on them that says satisfaction guaranteed. Uh, all of these sort of little branding and uh, marketing flashes that they put all over everything, and maybe we're just so used to them uh, that we don't that, that we ignore them. Uh, you know, I wouldn't buy a product unless the satisfaction of it was guaranteed. Uh, and what is the guarantee? What are they going to give it back to me if I say it's shit? I don't think so. Um, so do you think it's actually a monetary value that people are ascribing to, uh, the service that you provide by saying we'll actually double it? No, what it is, you need to know what you sell. And when you know what you sell, you can understand what it is that people are buying from you and you got to understand the reason why they're buying it from you. And if you understand the reason why they're buying it from you, you can then address any um, sort of perceived uh, shortcomings in their understanding of the risk that they're going to face by dealing with you okay. by giving them an irresistible offer. Right. So it doesn't have to be about money at all. In our case, it, it, for the most part, it's not actually about money because only 1% mass 
at a maximum do we have to give money back to? We have to honor our W money back guarantee because you know we know what we're doing and we don't we don't expose ourselves to that risk unnecessarily. Mm. Um, <clears throat> but so from that perspective, yes, when we do have to refund the money, it's a, it's a monetary cost to us. Uh, but actually, we know that our customers don't want the money anyway. Yeah, what they want the is, a, is the bloody visa. Yeah. 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 So so because because now our interests are aligned because I know that they want the visa and 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 they know that I don't want to give them double their money back. <laughs> uh, we've got alignment, sure. right? So so that's an irresistible offer. It, um, and and you you need to understand your niche as you would do uh, to be a success successful connection economy entrepreneur. You need to understand your niche to fathom what you think your irresistible offer uh, must be. And uh, I can't come up with, with with any good examples outside of you know, the Hong Kong immigration niche because that's what I know better than everybody else. Mm. But I am a consumer. And when I go out there and I'm dealing with other parties, um, I'm, I'm always making assessments as to risk to me uh, as to dealing with those other parties. And if they come up with something that completely removes that risk, irrespective of what it is and leaves me in a better place if they don't deliver, uh, then I'm going to be very interested in that. Well, it's we, amazing how so few people and so few businesses actually do that thinking and, and, and travel down that path when it's such an obvious thing to do in my view. In, in, my, in my world, when I was in F&B, the way if we, we had a, a, an inquiry for a function, if you, if you have a look at somebody when they're going to book a dinner, whether it be for a boss or for, um, for themselves, the first thing that they want is uh, an inkling of the experience, but they don't want to have to worry about anything after that. They want to make the booking, come have a great time and then leave. So if you have somebody who's booking a birthday function or an office function and you're dealing with the secretary, she doesn't want the stress of it being a good function or a bad function. She wants to be put at ease right at the very beginning and told, right, you make the booking, we'll handle everything after that. It's basically the same as your mint on the pillow service where you give us the documents, we take care of everything and sleep easy. I suppose that, that would be well, the they, same thing. Well, well, that's right. I think that's half of it, right? It's half of it in terms I'm of I'm only a halfway kind said. of guy, Stephen. <laughs> well, so, you know, to, to sort of to, to carry that, that analogy forward, right, we in our Hong Kong Visa Sherpa proposition, we know, for example, that there are four parties that are interested in what we do in a, in a, in a corporate immigration setting. That is a company that's got more than 100 employees. Um, those four parties, on the one hand, you've got the CFO of the business who's interested in the most efficient way and the most cost-effective way of, of getting this function in the business addressed. You've got the HR director who's interested in being able to deploy uh, the human human resource, the talent that they've got, uh, uh, in, in according to business need, in, in, you know, uh, in, in the most efficient way. Um, you've got the um, HR Staffer, this is the poor Joe that has to actually, you know, crimp the paperwork and deal with the immigration authorities and, and get the visa label in the passport and make sure that the ID card's applied for and steers the applicant where they need to go, when they need to go, and all the rest of that stuff. So that's three of the four people that have got an interest in what we're all about. And the fourth person is the applicant, uh, him or herself. Mm. And when you understand what um, what, what what you're really selling to those four parties, so to speak, the first three, that's CFO, HR director and staffer in the corporate setting, in the final analysis, what they're really buying from an immigration services provider is the ability to blame us if something goes wrong. 
Whereas in the for the individual who's going through the immigration application application themselves, they're not interested in being able to blame us if something goes wrong. They're interested in peace of mind because from their perspective, they want to you know know that the visa is going to get approved. It's going to get approved by a certain time, and the kids are all going to be in school when they need into their new school when they need to go to new school. And the day that the you know the 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 the, 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 the shipper comes to collect your stuff to ship it to Hong Kong, um, at, the, at that time they need to know with great confidence that they're actually going to be able to live in Hong Kong and that they're not going to be shipping their goods to the other side of the world and then get there and there's not going to be a visa for them to be able to live. So they want peace of mind out of all of that. So so because we understand that those are the three things that, uh, sorry, the, the two things that, uh, that the four parties are interested in, mm. um, we, you know, we've been able to approach our Sherpa proposition knowing that and design um, what we have all around that. Uh, so that we're we're giving them ultimately what they need. So we um, we've reinvented the way that we um, support corporate immigration by giving the companies the ability to do all their applications themselves without paying for any professional help, taking on board all the administration paperwork, intellectual understanding, communicating, you know, the process and all kind of that good stuff. We give it to the company completely for free via our websites. And then recognizing that they're paying us um, basically to blame somebody else if something goes wrong, we have a sign-off service. So they do all the heavy lifting. They 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 are able to retain all the what would have been extra expense of, of paying a, a 100% service fee to an outsourced provider. They can now keep effectively 80% of that cost in-house by having the staffer do it. It already gets their HR salary every month anyway. And they will pay, for example, just 20% of the normal cost of providing that immigration um service uh, to those companies by instructing us using our resources and then giving uh, us giving uh, us receiving all the papers and then giving uh, the sign off to say that yes in our opinion this visa application that you've prepared using our resources will get approved and we'll take responsibility for that hmm. so in that case what we've done is we've reduced the cost of providing the service by 80 percent but we're still actually as it happens maintaining our own margins which is presently two thousand hong kong dollars an hour and we, we have to spend maximum an hour reviewing the paperwork and making sure that it's all going to get approved and saying then saying to them yeah Basically, if it doesn't get approved, we know where to blame. Mm. Okay, and and that strategy works. Yeah, absolutely. Because mm. everybody gets to save money. Our credentials are obvious by the quality of our content and you know the social proof that we've garnered over time. Um, and in a sense, it's a connection economy uh, experience for these companies that are all looking for new ways of doing things that are more efficient and more effective using technology. Um, but in the final analysis, they get the same outcome and they save eighty percent of the expense that they've traditionally had to pay for that service. Mm. Fantastic. Mr. Barnes, you've brought us perfectly to the bottom of the hour. I know that you are in Thailand um, and uh, I hope you have an absolutely fantastic weekend with the family, sir. Speak to you next week, young man. Take care. Oh, say that again. Speak to you next week, young man. Oh, I like the young man, but never, never, ever hurts. You have a great weekend, my friend. Take care. Digital Bacon FM. Join us next time to find out the other two elements you need to take into account as you move forward into your competitive landscape and monopolize via the connection economy.